This is the America Builds Podcast, and I'm Will, a prior service U.S. Marine and venture capitalist, and I'm going on a journey to find those who engineer, build, manufacture, and move because they have the courage to get off the sidelines and execute. Paul Kwan, thanks so much for being on the show, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Will. It's great to be here. Everyone knows you as a general partner at GC. It's a big firm. It's a tier one. You're leading their global resiliency program or investment thesis. I want to dive into what that is. Most founders and other investors want to know the way in which you think about the world and the way in which you're thinking about deployed capital. But before we do that, and I think that there's like kind of an origin story for most people that work in the defense space. You knew somebody, you were in yourself, dad was in the CIA, or some connection to the ecosystem that makes it important. I'm curious to know, what is kind of like your origin story and why do you care so much about the defense space, critical infrastructure, technology, and the future of global resiliency? Yeah, thanks, Well, Growing up, I was a big fan of military history. I read a lot, studied a lot, got to college and uh, on the West Coast, and there was a guy down the hall named Mike Weston. And Mike was like that upperclassman guy you wanted to be like. He was a computer science econ major. That's what I studied. Kind of got me through physics one. He worked out. He boxed in his dorm room. Just a super cool guy, right? And he went to Harvard, got a JD degree. This is 1994, 95 timeframe. And then all of a sudden, he decides to enlist in the Marines. Soon as he looks in office, shooting officer looks and goes, hey, buddy, I think the Navy office is back on the other side of the bridge. So they're like, no, I want to be here. I'm here to be in the Marines. And so he goes to Paris Island and he told me all these crazy stories, you know, and, and uh, yeah. tear gas training and the force yeah. boxing. Was, and so he gets out, they had to hold his background confidential, right? Just didn't want to have him be extra hazed. And so then he gets out, you know, he did, he did three tours, did, you know, was a riverine captain, not a JAG guy, and just his great influence on me. So I saw that again, this is obviously way, he did all this before 9-11. And then the story kind of takes a darker turn. You know, he goes DEA, after he gets out, he does DA in South Florida, and then he goes DA in Kabul. And I had no idea the DA had an office in Kabul. And unfortunately, in, in 09, he went down, Chopper went down, 19 men died, special forces, DA agents, one of our biggest losses. And you know, that was just a you know, profound influence on me, guy Mike Weston, and showing me, as I'll be blunt, you know, Mike Weston could have been an amazing founder, amazing venture capitalist, technologist, whatever, right? And he chose. He chose to serve and, and make an impact. And then it just it gets a little bit crazier. So then I, I'm a big fan of military history. I know this guy, Mike. I get to Wall Street, 1996. I think I was probably one of the last kids chosen in the investment banking draft of 1996. And I get there and a year in, I'm in the bullpen and there's a guy next to me on the left who's a 40-year-old something Navy SEAL, been in Granada, OG. And then there's a guy on the right who was a ranger who'd been in Mogadishu. And so he was also older too. They had business degrees and I was, you know, straight out of college. And so we can talk more about that, but like the conversations and just the stories, the bickering those two guys had at night. And so that was an amazing experience. But the Navy SEAL actually was a huge influence. The guy named was Don Hubbard. He got into Morgan Stanley in 1999. He was actually hired by Ruth Peratt, who was now the CFO of Google. And Don said, hey, if I'm coming, I got to take this guy, Paul. So he kind of got me that job at Morgan Stanley, where I spent 20 plus years doing tech banking and ended up running the West Coast Tech Banking Group. I really appreciate and can relate to the story, especially about Mike Weston, because in my career as a Marine, as a VC, just early days when I was a kid, before I was even a Marine, I've run into people that are very talented that could do anything in the world. Like you said, they could be a founder, they could be a VC, they could be anything. And yet, for some reason, they chose 
a more difficult pathway. Most people think Marines, and I think it's true, it's a stereotype for a reason in this particular case, like Marines enlist out of high school because they don't have anything else going on. They're not going to college. And to think that somebody who has a law degree from Harvard might find value in that is like, for me at least, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but I always felt like I was just the next thing I was supposed to do the next thing. I was supposed to go to college because my parents expected me to. I didn't get a degree in economics. I got a degree in political science. But, you know, I always felt like I didn't have a strong direction. I just was kind of was like doing the next step, just doing the next thing. It seemed like what was expected of me. And then you meet these people who are men and women who are the quote unquote man in the arena, as Teddy Roosevelt would say, and they have everything. They could do anything. And they choose to do these fucking really hard and insane things. It's inspirational. And it always makes me wonder, what do they know that I don't know? <laughs> and I think what's, what's exciting is like, we have so many more of these people, right? I think we got to come back and answer that. What is global resilience? Because I know there's a lot of people talking yeah, about different should, themes and all that. that. But yeah, yeah, I yeah. think one thing that's super exciting as a venture capital investor in this innovation economy is you have a lot of these people coming out of service with amazing understanding the mission. They've got some really interesting business backgrounds. You've got people from the business and tech side coming into defense. Yeah, I just met two SVPs from kind of tier one software companies who say, hey, I don't know anything about defense and I want to learn and come into the space just on Monday. So this is a really interesting wow. time, Will. And I think everything yeah. you're doing on the podcast and everything cool. we're all doing here is really cool. By the way, before we move on, I want to share with you General Bill Donovan, who's the founder of the OSS, the Office of yeah. Strategic Services. He once said, CIA is looking for PhDs who can win a bar fight. And your boy, Mike Weston, sounds exactly like that type of person. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. For sure. Know, for like, sure. He said, he was like, when he got into that, the, um, he was like, hey, if someone's going to hit you, you got to know, but hit him first, harder in the face. Yeah, yeah, it's like some mix between Bill Donovan and Mike Tyson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. Yeah, yeah. So what is global resiliency? How do you think about the world? What are the basic tenets of it? Are there sectors you're focused on? And how do you define them? So I think for us at GC, at General Catalyst, global resilience, it's not just a theme, it's actually a theme and an approach. Right? I think that's where we differentiate because we do have some history in this space. We've been investing in defense tech for over 20 years, which wow. surprises some people. The first defense company we invested in was a company called BBN. We actually invested in them in 2004. For some of you, you know, they were the actual inventors of the ARPANET. So they gave us the internet. Oh, wow. And cool. two, right after we invested in 04, they invented the boomerang anti-sniper system. Cool. I'm very familiar with this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that actually took off so quickly for various reasons. We sold the company to Raytheon and it was a great investment in 04. But that experience, we did another defense tech company called OG Systems. But that background allowed us when Andrew showed up five years ago, we were ready. We understood the space and we were a seed investor in Andrew, one of the earliest investors in the company alongside Founders Fund, which obviously started the company. So we have some history there, Will, which I think is important because the second piece of it is, as we look at the world ahead of us, we have a deep appreciation for the changing geopolitics. We wrote about this in Harvard Business Review. We called it a vacation from history. We've had like a 30-year vacation from history. History is usually filled with bad things. Inflation, high interest rates, wars, yeah. conflicts, civil strife. We've really had, a, for the most part, that vacation. And that's changed. I think it's pretty clear. You pick up a newspaper and all the headlines are all about this geopolitical challenge. And so that's our theme. And as a result, we think we really need to modernize our most critical societal systems, which have yet to be modernized nor transformed via modern technology, defense, industrial, and energy. We used to include healthcare in that thesis, but we've done a pretty good job in healthcare where that's become its own 
sector has its own funds at General Catalyst. It's got a huge team. I think we've done 120 plus investments in healthcare. So that's kind of the vision of where we want to take global resilience from a thematic standpoint. Our approach is that because of what we learned in transforming healthcare, we think that to transform these hard industries requires a different approach. So global resilience, our approach is you're going to need more capital. You're going to need a longer duration, a longer time frame. Three, you're going to need to take an approach of radical collaboration. We need to radically collaborate with the government, with the incumbent ecosystem, with prime contractors. And we need to engage with trust and humility, these stakeholders, because that's something that VCs and innovators typically do very well. And the fourth piece of our approach is creativity. We might have to start a new company. We might have to buy a company. We can obviously invest in company, but you know, these spaces, defense, industrial energy, there aren't tons and tons of companies at size and scale. Some of have to be more creative. And so to us, it's a theme, but it's also an approach that's different. I'd like to just briefly double click on what radical collaboration is. Now you say that like traditionally entrepreneurs are not going to be radically collaborative, probably because they're interested in protecting their IP. It's their way or their highway, which is not, I think, a bad thing. I think it takes that kind of like mental acuity and endurance and true believer kind of drive for a founder to ensure that their mission is achieved. But like in the defense space, it's a collaborative mission. I mean, it's multi, it's joint agency, there's multiple departments involved, there's data all over the place. So inherently, you need a different type of founder who maybe isn't so hard headed in achieving what they want to do, but rather is open to this radical collaboration. And you need the LPs to understand it's going to take longer and more capital. I'm parroting what I think you exactly. said. Is that, did yeah. you look for founders differently then? Are you looking for like nicer guys or what? I do think like the founding teams that we've seen that have been successful have had a mix of these skills, either through multiple founders or different skill sets, different superpowers, right? You kind of have to have the innovation speed of a technologist. You got to have the go-to-market, business development savvy to navigate the DoD, which we'll talk about later. I think third, you have to have the organizational scaling and creativity required to navigate this hard issues. I think from a team standpoint, we look for those sorts of things. I think also from an ecosystem standpoint, I do think this is really important. You need to understand the mission and understand the customer really well. And I think mm -hmm. that that's something where you either have it inherently or you kind of have to bring that expertise on board. And so to our end, we brought on board Lieutenant General Scott Howell, who ran JSOC, 34 years U.S. Air Force. So he's been on our team. We have Teresa Carlson on our team. Teresa was the former head of worldwide public sector sales for Amazon AWS. So $10 yep. billion business. Uh, in fact, I think yesterday she presented at the annual bipartisan Senate forum on defense AI. So one of the few VCs in the room on the defense AI side. And so these are things we do to kind of get access to mission knowledge, understanding go-to-market. And then as Scott and Teresa tell our teams, when you engage with the government, you have to engage with a, an ethos of respect and humility and earn trust over time. So these sound like words, but I think for everyone in the innovation economy, you do have to adopt that ethos to go build that trust over time. I was just talking to another investor in the defense space. They would fancy themselves as specifically a defense investor and selling an old story from maybe 2017 or 18, where I was briefing a number of general officers in the Pentagon. And trust me, when I was a young captain in the Marine Corps, these people would not have been listening to me. 
But now that I was out and wearing skinny jeans and I appeared to be a Silicon Valley guy, right? Or whatever. I'm just painting with a broad brush here, but they all of a sudden wanted to know, like, how did you do it? You know, they think I built Facebook. I don't even have Facebook, but that's what they think. And so the irony is that, like, you can get away with telling them you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. This is the way it works in Silicon Valley. And by the way, that kind of approach like works to an extent in an environment like the Pentagon, which is extremely respectful, almost to the point where like people have a hard time telling truth to power. So now when you come in as the Silicon Valley guy and you come in and you're like, oh, I'm just going to speak a lot of truth to power. It's almost like a vibe you got going on. But you're saying that there is respect and humility that's required. I think that that's right. I think that's the long-term play. It's like everyone likes being told. It's like the general kind of was like, oh, who's this young guy telling me I'm wrong? I'm going to listen. But the actual strategy long-term is to have humility, respect, and to understand the culture of the Pentagon. Is that kind of like what you're saying? That's what we're trying to solve. Yes, that's right. Wow. And how do you do that? I mean, like, does General Cattles have events, demo days, get-togethers, luncheons, happy hours, anything like that in D.C. where you engage with customers? Or like, how does that manifest, I guess. Yeah, I, mean, I think one of the exciting things like there's like a national security event like almost like every week now. I think awareness yeah. both on the yeah. East Coast and the West Coast. And so you do that circuit, you have your meetups and you have your advisors and you build your connections. But you know, it's like any other thing you do. You have to build depth of relationship and depth of trust. It takes time. You can't rush that. You can't just go meet with some politician once and expect you have a base and a foundation. And so one of the things we talk a lot about is patience. So my partner, Alexa Leoto, was at the Shift Venture Summit in you know, D.C. That, that Mike put on, a yeah. huge event, right? And they asked her, like, what's your one word for the audience? And she said, patience. We need patience from the investing economy, especially for those coming into the space. This is a long slog. It's a step function business model. It's not an exponential business model. And we need patience from the founders. And then we need urgency from the establishment. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. I've been told that like the defense space is actually a family business. If you have a mom or dad that serves, then you're more likely to serve yourself. And I think that reputation goes a long way. Like if you're transactional or jerk with people, people will know about that. If you are kind, collaborative, but also doggedly focused on the mission, people know that about you too. And even if they disagree with you politically or otherwise, they know you're on the same side. And so I think you're 100% right. That's actually a true differentiator, what you've said already about like the way Silicon Valley approaches this and tells people they're wrong at the Pentagon versus saying like there's an established culture. Yeah, we'll never use the word disrupt. Everything we say is transform right. in partnership. Transform. Yeah, 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 yeah. So when you think about category defining companies within yeah. global resiliency, are there key elements to what you identify in a founder or in a company that key you into the fact that this might be category defined or a huge hit? So if you just step back, and I think I had the real privilege to, again, work in technology investment banking for 25 years, right? And basically work with the most category-defining technology companies of our generation over a multi-decade span. And what you see there is category-defining does not mean we create a whole new category of stuff or market. The Actually, the most valuable companies that compounded over time in the public markets were category-defining in their approach. And what does that mean? It means that multiple elements create value. So you have product could be category defining. You could have sales model be category defining. Product led growth, viral sales. You could have a category defining business model, such as SaaS software. You could be category defining in terms of your culture. 
thing about a Zappos or something like that. Or you could be category defining in terms of your data you collect with the analytics. And so the thing we learned watching these companies evolve over time, pick any one of these generational companies in technology, it wasn't just the product or the sales or the operations or the business model or the culture. All of them in their own way were unique and differentiated. So therefore, when we look at category defining companies, when we say that general catus, we are trying to think who is building, obviously, a defining product, but who's building defining culture, who's building differentiated go-to-market, who's building a differentiated business model. Those are all the pieces, well, that go into a category defining company. It's not just, oh, I created this whole new market. So a bit of a yeah. soliloquy on what yeah. that meant for us, but that's what we saw firsthand in the public markets. And once you're deployed in these companies, when you deploy capital, when you allocate capital, do you have an exit plan in mind with this particular company or are you in for the long run or is it kind of like both? It's like, yeah, I'm in for the long run. I'm going to support the entrepreneur, but I can already see how this might exit. We, like most people, think about what is the value creation path. For us, I don't think this is particularly differentiated, but you know, can this become a public company? How is this strategic value over time? But I think what a lot of people worry about in defense tech is like, oh, there are no comparables. What are they going to be the good comparables? There's a lot of hardware involved. Is that going to be a premium? It's not SaaS software. We don't have recurring revenue, contractual visibility. Is that going to be an issue? And the reason why we feel so sanguine, so optimistic about defense tech, or more broadly defined global resilience, right? Defense, industrial energy. It turns out every category defining company, every category defining industry has spawned a whole new valuation approach. Most companies, when they're category defining, when they go to the public markets, they're massively misunderstood. Salesforce.com had a brutal IPO. So did Google. I mean, Spotify, which I led, was an amazing story. People don't understand category defining companies because so much is happening under the hood. And so, yes, we have Palantir and SpaceX and Android, but I think that you don't need to obsess too much about worrying about the exit path. I think the size of the market is so big and these companies are so critical, we will get a premium on the exit. We can talk more about that if you want. There is one comment I want to make. If there are no comps in the defense space, my opinion, Silicon Valley, you could say, no one's ever seen this before. Therefore, it's a new market. It's making a new market. People are going to love this. It has no competition. The moat is your first mover. In the defense space, if no one's seen it before, there's no written requirement for it. There's no program of record that's written for that. And actually being a first mover in the defense space can be really challenging because it means that you are trailblazing in Congress authorization language and in appropriations language, the money that has to be. And if you survive that valley of death, if you will, and those requirements are written for you and you are awarded the program of record, by golly, you're made. But that's why we do owe a, a, a burden of, of market debt to Palantir, to SpaceX, for being those pioneers, for sure. Like, I think it'd be much, much harder if they weren't on private capital driving that. And obviously, we're fortunate to be part of the journey on some of those companies. But yes, I think that's for sure acknowledged. I do want to say, like, the market doesn't get these companies right. And it's a consistent thing. We have a company called Samsara that we invested in. Samsara is probably the best example of a company that has some hardware. It was misunderstood. People thought it was a camera company. What they do is they provide amazing software and solutions for industrial operations. It's a great company. And right now, Samsara is one of only seven public tech companies that's doing a billion in ARR 
with more than 30% growth and free cash flow positive, trades at one of the highest revenue multiples of any tech company. And I can tell you at the time of the IPO, just a few years ago, people thought it was a hardware company, people thought it was a camera company, and was misunderstood. And so it's this consistent thing. We spend enough time in the public markets, the first one or two companies might be misunderstood. You kind of create a whole ecosystem there. But again, if you are really creating value in your business model and you can articulate that to the markets, you can get that premium valuation. So we don't really worry much about hardware, software. We don't really worry too much about no comps. It was my job, obviously, Will, for many years to get that premium multiple for yeah. defining companies. And so I feel quite confident we can get there on the, on the back end. So with regard to having an exit strategy, I feel like this is like good lessons learned from Iraq. We should probably have an exit strategy before we get into this. In the defense space, people, we have a really unique and dug in and entrenched culture around primes. So even in Silicon Valley, the primes are kind of like, they were the startups of yesterday. I feel like I'm quoting somebody, maybe like Dan Guac or something. Maybe I shouldn't quote him or I should at least give him credit. And so it's like Facebook and Google are kind of like, you know, the big tech firms of today. And so if you want to go work for big tech, that's what you do. They've only been around for 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Though in Washington, D.C., there are firms like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, et cetera. They've been around for like decades, seven, eight, nine decades. They were some of the first companies in the wake of the Second World War that were servicing contracts and hired by the Marshall Plan, which is pretty incredible that they helped rebuild Europe and other places. Kudos to them. But so all that means is that like, is there really enough space for a bunch of new Lockheed Martins at the table, let's call it like new Andros, and even Andros, as successful as they are, is a drop in the bucket in comparison to Lockheed Martin in a, in a lot of ways. I'm not throwing spears. I'm saying they're still young. They don't have in 90 years of experience on their side. Is M&A having this like 50 to $500 million exit strategy relevant when you're placing an early stage pre-seed seed? And I'm willing to bet that like you don't make bets based on a $50 million exit. I get that. But there's a very robust M&A industry that goes to these major primes. How do you think about that? I mean, like, does it change the economics on your fund when you say 10% of this, the power law, 10% of these are going to pay for the party. But guess what? Another 20% could get eaten in M&A by the Lockheed's, Raytheon's of the world. Does yeah, I, I think that's definitely a little bit of it. I think it's really not quite kind of our focus. I think, you know, you hit on it. We are trying to be more power law driven and think about, like, how can we create more modern primes like an Android? And I'd say maybe kind of a couple things. You know, one was my, my, my aunt worked at Lockheed Martin for 30 plus years. What'd she do? What'd she work on? Network security and just making stuff to stay safe and secure. But I think on the primes, we have a deep appreciation back to radical collaboration for how to partner with the primes. I think a lot of people come at this from a disruption standpoint. I'll give you one example. We invest in a company called Helsing out of Europe. It's probably the leading European AI company. It's actually the number one European AI defense company. And they had an approach of, hey, let's go partner with the primes in Europe and get capability into the marketplace faster. So they won a programmer record in two years and two months from their founding will. How did they do that? Well, they hired an amazing software team. They built an amazing team and they partnered with Saab together to build the new electronic warfare package for the Eurofighter. So there are these amazing ways if you can partner with the primes in the right way to accelerate market penetration, take advantage of all their contract vehicles, their lobbying, their security clearances. Yep. All that stuff. So I think that's one really amazing thing that the primes don't get enough credit for. I think the second element around kind of thinking about the market space is this is one of the really few markets that's a trillion dollar market that, you know, hasn't spent a lot on software. 
we could argue the percent of the DOD budget on software, probably in the order below 10%, right? It's probably somewhere between, you know, three to 8%. So it doesn't benefit from all the iteration speed that modern software technology can bring. And then three, you're not competing against these huge tech competitors, right? So you ask about the opportunity for startups to compete and scale. You have a huge market that hasn't really modernized. You have this geopolitical pressure. And four, you're not competing against the world's best people from Google, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, right? And so nothing against the competition, but like if you can have a great team and build capability like a Helsing and then partner with a prime, that can lead to real impact for the warfighter very quickly. Yeah, that is really interesting. I mean, most people in the government talk about trying to attract that talent out of Google and Facebook and Uber and other places and try to bring them into government. And it just sounds like that's not something you would agree with. That's one way. I think, you know, you listen, like real urgency here, like we really need to get capability out and upgraded. And so I think you got to collaborate, right? You can't sacrifice the culture and speed of a tech startup in that culture. In DoD, as your audience all knows, like, there are a lot of benefits and ways to accelerate things if you can partner together. Do you think that a company that sells to the U.S. Department of Defense or the federal government or just into Western governments, Westphalian governments, should they have a, a healthy commercial go-to-market or is that a distraction? Should it be one, then the other, or only one, or both simultaneous? Yeah, I think we should debate this. We might, we might be on opposite ends. I think dual use, it seems like this religious, philosophical debate. I think it should be an output of your specific market focus and your team's strengths. It's not like some constraint or some design criteria. So if what you're doing can fit in a dual-use context, great, go for it. If your team has great GR, DUD experience, absolutely leverage non-dilutive capital innovation dollars to go build and go commercial. It's how do you best optimize it? I think, you know, having said that, like, do we care so much at GC about dual-use? No. Like, Andrel is going to be an incredible company. We have Vanivar Labs. I mentioned Helsing. We don't philosophically care. We simply think, hey, how are you best optimizing your team strengths and your market focus to scale, whether dual-use or not? Yeah, I think that the argument would be that if Andrew sold to YouTube for, sold a product to YouTube for campus security to look out for shooters, that that's a form of dual use. The idea is that like, you know, most companies don't know if their first dollar, as we talked about, DOD is slow, people have to be patient. VCs are not particularly patient, although it sounds a little different in the GC case, which is nice. And so as a result, they almost feel pressured. Companies, not Andrew, generally speaking, early stage companies feel pressured to sell to some commercial entity. And in fact, you're saying as somebody who might sit on a board, potentially that that could be a distraction. Yeah. It's an output of your strategy. So if you're somewhat capital constrained, if what you're building could work for YouTube, then great. If you want to go build large systems, you know, and compete against primes and you have the capital base like Andrel, you have to, because that's the only way you can really make huge impact. Right. And so I think it's simply an output of, we've got a really cool company we're working on, which we'll announce, you know, in a month or two. And They've got some really cool software to help, you know, modern defense and aerospace companies kind of build things quicker. And so the team's got amazing access to DoD. And so they've got some great funding sources, but the whole strategy is dual use. So again, that speaks to their strength, speaks to their focus. I think there's a common narrative within the federal space around inefficiencies in the procurement cycle. Are there changes from the outside as an outsider, somebody who's, I guess, you've never been a program manager or an acquisitions officer in the government. So from a pure outsider's perspective, do you ever see the government doing something in the way in which they, and you just say like, this is just totally ass backwards. As a result, we have to be radically collaborative and patient. 
Do you have recommendations for the department on how they can do business better? So the great news is a bunch of smart people got together and made those recommendations. Talking about the Atlantic Council report from a few months ago, I think think Stephen and team and Mark Esper did a great job and the whole committee there. I'm going to generalize, but I think it's like a 12-page document from the Atlantic Council. Mark Esper kind of led. Stephen Rodriguez was pre-evolved in his recommendations, 12 recommendations, one page each, and it's kicked off a couple of additional committees. And those recommendations are phenomenal. Can we actually carry through is kind of the bigger question. So that's my kind of stock answer on that. I think it's been our observation that is a lot of complaining and criticisms of the procurement process and the political process there. That's a lot of misunderstanding. And our modus operandi is like, it is what it is. It might change, it might not. You just have to navigate to the best of your capabilities and to the best of your strategy. And so what gets us really excited actually is we see for the first time different kinds of companies figuring out different ways to get to budgets and to get to scale. And I think this is a point that is really exciting because this is, I think, the way we unlock that without having to hope that the whole procurement process changes. So you have, in our minds, the high capital opportunities, you know, Andrel, SpaceX, Palantir, raise a lot of capital, invest privately, build products and capabilities in advance of requirements, and go do that. That's great. Takes a lot of capital. You know, even Helsing, the example I gave you, they had you know, some pretty good funding along the way. But you're also seeing a lot of software and systems companies, which are kind of taking more of a bottoms up, almost like a product-led motion, Will, and getting in using training exercise dollars or UFER dollars, or just more creative ways to get to $20, $50 million software revenues or system revenues. I think about Vanivar Labs, which has done an amazing job, being very, very capital efficient. And I think you know they've a very profitable software company. And there's other examples as well there. And then I see a lot of interesting companies who have built an amazing system for some really top-notch capability. They've been able to point partner with some primes and get capable like a hidden level on the radar side. And then there's also guys like Red Cell, who are kind of an incubation firm in DC, but they've been able to do top-down driven stuff. So I think my only point was like, yes, we wish acquisitions changes. The Atlantic Council reports got a lot of great ideas, but we can't wait around. And right. so what are the yeah, different like, what ways? What are you going to do? Yeah, what are you yeah, going to yeah. do? Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, you either raise a lot of capital, build a big system, or you go bottoms up, you go more PLG, you just find dollars. Teresa Carlson yeah. always reminds me, she sold $10 billion a year to worldwide governments a year, $10 billion a year at Amazon, and had only one program record. What is the role of the West? When you think about global resiliency, you're investing in companies that might be built in Europe, Asia, Africa, I'm assuming you're making investments everywhere. Do you ever think about them selling to other governments? And is that part of the strategy as well? I mean, Anderol's done so well in the US government. What about the Ministry of Defense? Yeah, so there's two sides to that coin. So yes, global resilience for us is how do we modernize our critical systems for us and our allies in this changing geopolitical world? That's the mission. Again, defense, industrial energy around the world. We've got a number of investments in India, you know, we just did Helsing in Europe and obviously in the US. And so that's absolutely our strategy. And I think, you know, as Andrew has shown, there's some great opportunities there. And I think being able to go global for defense tech is a real opportunity. I mean, that's something we kind of help our companies with. The flip side of that is how do you know who you're selling to and how do you yeah. ensure you're selling to the right people? And so we have a big focus at General Catalyst called Responsible Innovation. It's actually our mission. So our mission at General Catalyst is to invest in powerful, positive change that endures. And the mission by which we do that is called Responsible Innovation. We wrote a book about it. We funded a nonprofit. And Responsible Innovation is how do we build technology that's safe, secure, 
inclusive, and promotes harmonious society. And that last piece is where obviously defense tech fits in, but it also means if you're in defense tech, how do you make sure you're selling to the right people? Not every democracy is a democracy. The best companies we've invested in and work with, they think very, very carefully, like, if I'm doing defense AI, how do I ensure this is in the right hands? What are the guardrails? What are the ethics? And so again, going on that rat hole, but we sure, yeah. globalization two, twofold. You got to think, hey, yes, empowering around the world, but two, what are the flip sides and how do you make sure it's being deployed and sold correctly? I think that General Catalyst is not going to be able to solve the problem of blowback, which is the unintended consequences of war or your actions in war. And so if a bunch of equipment is left in Afghanistan and you just happen to have invested in a lot of it and it gets into the hands of the Taliban, that's not on GC. That's not on you. That's not the fiduciary. Like it's on the US government. And so I don't think anyone has like. Well, that's a mindset. It's really more, I mean, if you think about AI, right? Software AI, like where is that going to get deployed? How do you, and so it's a mindset around thinking through the, this is all in our book. It's all in our methodology. Yeah. How do you think through the second order, third order impacts of the solution you're building? It just matters a lot more in defense than other sectors. It also matters a lot in healthcare, obviously. This is where we got a lot of that inspiration. You got to think through mentally, what are the second and third order effects of your solution in defense or in healthcare, because it's touching people's lives and society. YC has been a pillar in Silicon Valley of innovation, starting companies, et cetera. I mention it because there seems to be a growing interest in defense companies in DC. Is there space for a YC of defense? Yeah, there is. And I think uh, what's driving that in my mind is the kinds of people coming to work in defense tech. It's really, really exciting. It reminds us of healthcare probably six, seven years ago. So you started to see six, seven years ago, healthcare tech really taken off. And it's a couple of reasons. One, you had a lot of founders with relevant experience in tech saying, hey, I want to work in healthcare. It could have been a personal experience with healthcare. Maybe, you know, people are getting to a certain age, you know, there were also some examples of companies scaling well. So it was kind of like a Lovongo that we funded that did quite well. So there's examples of value creation. And third, you had some technology maturation, you know, some AI, some other software capabilities. The same thing's happening in defense. We're seeing lots of technology, entrepreneurs, second-time people, experienced operators say, hey, for my next thing, I want to work in defense, right? I had a call, we had a dinner on Monday in SF, and we had a couple VPs from technology companies who'd never done defense before. And they say, hey, I want to work about defense. I have no idea. I want to get in the space. And these are great kinds of people that never would have worked at a defense company. So I think the talent, well, that's going to drive that opportunity you highlighted. And then obviously the geopolitics on global resilience. Yep. And then again, the fact that we have leading companies. So I think that's a big, big opportunity. I think that there's a lot of innovation, but there's a lot of like startup growth capital in Silicon Valley. There's a lot in New York City too. But for a long time, people have said, well, Miami, well, Boston, well, Austin, Texas. And they try to like make this pitch that there's going to be a center of capital and innovation in one of these other locations. Maybe that's not the case. I don't think it's proven to be the case. A lot of people moved and then regretted it. And I'm sure you have similar friends that have done this. You know, it's, it's like New York and SF. I'm sorry. Like, that's just the game. Maybe LA for the lifestyle. But that's only because you can, like, fly to SF in the morning for a coffee and no one knows you don't live in Menlo. Does DC really have, like, do you think it'll attract talent? Do you think folks, engineers, I think, uh, before I move off of that question, I think just going back to the YC thing, we already have something like that. It's called Hacking for Defense. 
with Steve Bang and, right, and yeah. Joe Felter. And uh, that's a great program that they've been, been working on scaling. So I think on the city's part, being in DC is important. You're going to see most of these teams, in our opinion, be distributed, right? Austin has some amazing companies and they've got great mm -hmm. access to Army Futures Command and LA obviously has the aerospace and defense stuff. So I right. think you'll see these geographic pods of talent and the kind of modern defense tech company probably is going to be multi-pod, multi-geo, Austin, LA, DC. And so again, back to value creation, back to being kind of category finding, managing kind of distributed operations and teams will be actually a great skill to really master. Cool. Let's finish up a couple of lightning questions. What are you reading right now, Paul? Venture meets mission. So Arun Gupta, longtime DC player, he gave me a, a pre-read, pre-publication coming out, I think early next year. We bought a bunch of these books for actually our office and for our class. We, we teach a class at Stanford on national security, but it's just kind of like, what's the point of it all? And the point of it is mission. How do we align people, purpose, and profit? to innovate and transform society. It's a real great overlay with our responsible innovation mission at GC. Again, how do we work on stuff that matters, make money, but make impact? And how do we have his words mission? I like to use purpose as a North Star and drive forward. Favorite movie of all time? Just you on the couch, Saturday night, popcorn by yourself. What are you watching? I can't quite think of all time. This is going to be embarrassing, but you're super out the names. I was watching this show on Netflix, Obliterated. It's like this comedy about some special operations CIA people running around Vegas, half stone, saving the world from a dirty nuke. You probably did some of that work well. You know, you can't talk about it. Which part of it will leave out, but it's yeah, just, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's funny. If anyone's listening to this, I was not super high, just for the record. <laughs> okay, last question for you. If you could be doing something else with your life, what's this other job? What would you have done? Would you have gone to CIA? Would you have moved overseas? Would you have done something else? What would you have yeah, I, I told somebody the other day, I, I think I would have liked to be um, Intel analyst or something like that yeah. if I wasn't um, the career path I'd had. But that would have been really cool. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Paul Kwan, GP from General Catalyst. Thanks so much for joining us today, man. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, all. It's been a real pleasure. Appreciate it.